Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. My name is Danny Lawler and I am the Managing Director of Aquest and your host for this podcast. Before I introduce my co-host, let me just take a moment to explain the topic for this podcast, which is CP86, or Consultation Paper 86. So as we record in the middle of June 2018, we're about two weeks away from the implementation date for that set of guidance and rules, which is on the 1st of July. CP86 is the name given to the Central Bank of Ireland's body of work around fund management company uh, effectiveness. Um, CP86, Consultation Paper 86, was just the number for the first consultation, which was issued way back in 2014. But the name has stuck. So since then, uh, the reference to CP86 is, is a reference to this body of work. And what it tries to do is explain what the central bank's expectations are of fund management companies and their directors and designated persons and how they should act in order to make sure that the firms are compliant with their regulations and that they can demonstrate that they're compliant with all the rules that they're subject to. So as I said, it was published, the final package, at the end of 2016, had an 18-month transition period, which comes to an end in about two weeks' time on the 1st of July. So with that in mind, we're just going to chat a little bit about the changes that have come about in the industry as a result of CP86, and maybe look forward to see whether that change is likely to continue or how this might play out going into the future. So for today, I'm delighted to introduce my two co-hosts. I've got Killian Buckley from Duff and Fabs and Connor Malloy from Promonetary. He's also on the Council of the Irish Funds Directors Association. So let me let the guys introduce themselves. I'll start with Killian. Hi, thanks, Danny, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, speak on the podcast. Uh, yeah, my name is Killian Buckley. I'm a managing director in Duff and Phelps and head of our management company solutions in Ireland and Luxembourg. So we would look after a range of USITs and AIFM clients uh, setting up product in both domiciles. Uh, I'm based in Ireland, so CP86 obviously has been uh, you know a huge part uh, of our offering for the last uh, number of years, and particularly the last number of months. We would have a significant number of clients moving through the CP86 process, transitioning to the new regime. Connor. Hi. Uh, good morning. So just to say thank you very much, actually. It's nice to be here this morning. Um, Connor Malloy is my name. Uh, I'm here um, primarily to represent the Irish Fund Directors Association. I'm on the council of the Irish Fund Directors Association here in Dublin, which was set up about three to four years ago uh, at the behest of the Central Bank of Ireland. Uh, in terms of actually um, greater representation through fund directors actually in the Irish market and engaging with various stakeholders, including the, the central bank. My other role actually is with uh, Promontory, a uh, financial group in Europe. Uh, Promontory is a, an international advisory, regulatory advisory and risk management firm. Uh, we are in about 23 countries around the world. Most of our work actually is with banks, with governments, with central banks, governments, uh, with banks, with insurance companies and with fund managers. Good. And, and just thinking about directors, Connor, and, and, and looking to, to your side, if we go way back to 2014, when the first consultation on CB86 was issued, it really focused around directors. And in it, there was a set of draft guidance at the time that set out the central bank's expectations for how the good board of directors would go about doing their job. Also talked importantly about time commitments and what it expected of directors in terms of um, the capacity of, of time they would have over the course of a year and how they would dedicate a certain amount to their job and have some uh, uh, time in reserve in case issues came up. Um, so really, I suppose the intention from the central bank's perspective was to change behaviours and just improve uh, the 
the uh, standards of around how directors do their job. Have you seen changes in how things happen, like the appointment of directors, who takes on directorship roles, um, the way that they go about their jobs versus how they might have done it even two years ago? Yes, um, I'll say this. I'd say the primary focus of regulators over the last probably six to eight years has been around governance, okay, in relation to uh, accountability, uh, in relation to investor protection, in relation to behaviour, in relation to culture and various things. Um, I'd say this, the regulatory change in the last six to eight to ten years has been enormous, and that's all been post-crisis. So the post-financial crisis, which has impacted every financial firm, probably every investor, almost every investor in the last ten years. What do they want to do? So regulators want to safeguard the, the, the financial services system, uh, not just in Europe or in Ireland, actually, but across the globe. So the primary starting point in relation to that, actually, is at the, the legal entity and at the governance of the legal entity, as in how is that firm or how is that fund or how is that bank or how is that insurance company actually managed? So today, uh, compared to eight to 10 years ago, there has been various and many regulatory guidelines, directives, uh, obligations, um, um, procedures and recommendations and various things along the way from all of the, not just the NCAs actually, but also in relation to regulatory bodies like ESMA, uh, EBA, uh, and uh, EOPA in relation to the exact same theme. And that is about governance, it's about accountability, and it's actually about doing the right thing for the investor or the consumer. And are you seeing how the directors are appointed in terms of a bigger pool of directors available now, better qualification, uh, better understanding of what's expected of directors? Yeah, well, let's go back. I mean, you know, directors, non-exec directors, independent non-exec directors, you've got to distinguish actually between the rows of each. Okay, And what it's really doing actually here is CP86 is doing this actually where the role of the non-execs, uh, is is greater emphasised in relation to oversight, actually, of the, the designated persons and the PCF roles, actually, if you want to call it that, within the firm itself. So accountability is, is very, very clear here in relation to the various layers of how first line works, second line works, and third line works. Um, I think it's a good document. I don't think there's a huge amount new in it compared to what I've seen in other actually different sectors. So GL11, uh, GL44, so GL11 is coming in on the end of June this year. GL44 was an EBA uh, guideline in relation to internal governance. What is really interesting actually is GL11 is a joint document on governance, internal governance, okay, which is joint with ESMA and the EBA. So what you're seeing is is regulatory expectations are being harmonized or there's convergence in relation to the expectation of directors, uh, executive directors, chairs and non-exec directors in what their purpose is and where they're accountable to. And my sense is that the pool of available directors is increasing and certainly the, the opportunities for further education specifically for directors are probably greater now than they were in the past. So notwithstanding that there's quite a lot of obligations and directors and expectations are higher, there's still a pool of people there who, who want to take on the role. So it's not, it's not scaring people away. No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I think, uh, I think this, I think um, understanding actually what the regulations are understanding the purpose, understanding actually how the regulators actually then oversee 
the application of those uh, regulations, the embedding of those regulations actually in the various entities, I mean, is crucial. So if you want to be an independent non-exec director or even a non-exec director, you've got to be very, very aware actually of not just <clears throat> the regulatory obligations actually that you have to fulfill, but also the legal obligations. And I would go back even a step further actually in the local context actually here. The Companies Act 2014 is very, very clear about actually what it wants in relation to boards and directors and how companies should function. The, the, the regulatory guidelines in relation to CP86, in addition to sort of CRD, are in relation to the, the corporate governance codes actually that come out over here and also through the EBA and ESMA and everything else, do reflect, in effect, in many, many cases actually, the statutory obligations. And that is the duty of care of directors and the management body actually to act in the best interests actually of all stakeholders, but particularly investors. And Killian, from your side then, I know you don't act as director, I don't think, but you do um, act as designated person and as fund management company. Are you sort of seeing a different approach from directors? Are you seeing different people being directors than you might have seen a little while ago? How's that playing out on your side? Yeah, um, yeah. to confirm, Duff and Phelps doesn't provide uh, director services. Um, we, we focus on the designated person role and obviously are a, a fund management company as well. Um, I mean, I, I think you have to look at the guidance in its sort of entirety, in aggregation, really. Um, uh, so I don't think it, it we can sort of isolate the director role versus the designated person role versus the whole organisational framework, to be honest. So, um, you know, I, th I think what we saw in the guidance was, a, a, you know, a codifying of what the bank believed to be best practice when it came to the effectiveness of a fund management company. Um, you know, the reality is probably uh, throughout the last 10, 12 years, uh, the the form of self managed funds or management companies and how those you know companies are organised took very very different um, approaches um, you know from self managed funds where directors were designated persons through to management companies which had a very non executive board of directors and a very executive series of of designated persons performing performing roles so I think you have to sort of consider the relationship between the director and the designated person and what it achieves in its totality notwithstanding you know that the, the the points made earlier in terms of fiduciary duty that directors have and their you know duty to investors, which incidentally uh, you know within CP eighty six there is a line that says that designated persons should act in the best interests of investors as well. So that's introduced you know an element of a fiduciary duty that wasn't there previously, um, or at least wasn't uh, explicitly stated. So I think what we have seen, particularly um, through this consultation and through its implementation, as we as we get very close to this deadline, is a sort of an enhancement um, to that designated person role, an elevation of expectation from the central bank in terms of both the seniority of the individual performing the role, their experience and expertise, uh, and also their proximity to the fund itself. And by that, I mean, you know, these are delegated structures. Uh, so, you know, unlike a investment firm or an insurance company, um, you know, the majority of, of uh, activities are delegated outwards, be it administration or, or investment management. And that has its own nuances in terms of how you supervise that approach. Um, and I think the expectation that the bank has, um, which is a valid expectation, is that there is a sufficient um, 
I guess, level of communication and level of supervision and oversight between uh, the designated person and those delegates so that the designated person can can perform the role. So in that sense, um, I, I think the fund structure, to call it that, the virtual fund structure has moved closer to the delegate in terms of day-to-day activity, ongoing oversight. Um, and I think in that I, while I certainly don't believe the director role has has reduced it to any extent, I think it still has its its the same level of importance. And of course, there are now roles such as the organisational effectiveness role, which in many ways becomes a point person. Uh, I think for the central bank in terms of their engagement with the with the fund structure. But I think what has particularly happened is just a broadening and enhancing of that designated person role. Well, I think we got nearly 15 minutes in before mentioning the organisation effectiveness role, which is a new record. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, one of the changes I think was that I, I've noticed is that you don't tend to see directors take on designated person roles anymore. Um, and although they're allowed to do it, um, they can do it provided they get a separate letter of appointment and they have the expertise and the time equipment available to them to do the job as if you know, the same as any other designated person would do it. Is that a fair assessment? Is is sort of that, that approach of doing both roles sort of not something we, we're going to see too much of well, now? Well, I, I certainly don't think we, we you know, our, our sense from the last uh, year, and I would even say the last couple of months, uh, is that the certainly independent directors uh, are not going to take on designated person roles. I mean, I think there are a series of, you know, very large legacy structures out there from, you know, well-known asset managers who... Um, you know, I effect, effectively staff up the, the the product with their own designated persons in in Europe or further afield, allowing for the location rule that that now is in place. So, um, I think culturally, those institutions are comfortable with their own individuals performing the designated person role and potentially being a director as well. Um, so, I think with the sort of caveat of that kind of structure, um, it, it is definitely true to say that for a, a sort of a non-executive independent director, my belief, uh, or our belief anyway, is that taking on a designated person role would be a significant you know, extra uh, burden of responsibility and activity, um, particularly as it comes to that oversight role. Um, you know, the, if you get into the granularity of, of what the central bank is saying, um, you know, you, you, you look at really what is an annual compliance program almost, which has daily interactivity between the investment manager, the administrator and a designated person. You know, the assumption is there are monthly reports and monthly meetings and there are site visits and due diligence visits that take place. There's testing and verification requirements. Um, and that's only potentially with the administrator. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see where the expectations of the bank will fall in relation to interactivity with the investment manager itself. But I, I certainly think, um, you know, for, for a non-executive independent, to, it, it sort of is counterintuitive to take on that executive type role as a designated person. Yeah, and sorry, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I mean, at the end of the day, you have to sort of understand actually from, from an INED's point of view, you know, what's their purpose? Their purpose actually is one, independence, and two, is really oversight. And if, if an INED actually is performing a designated role, well, in effect, that's a, that's a management role, okay? Even though it's allowed, it's a management role, and it gets blurred. Uh, it could, in my view, actually uh, sort of um, what, uh, d- detract, perhaps, the independence 
potentially, okay, uh, particularly when things go wrong, actually, in relation to the role of the INED, because their independence then could, in effect, be criticised, okay, or argued to be no longer independent if they have a designated person role, uh, and, and something sort of, there's an issue in relation to that, be it some sort of litigation of various things, actually, along the way, or even a regulatory uh, issue, uh, too. I think the other thing to, to, to bear in mind, actually, is, is that independence and NEDs actually are part-time, so they're not full-time. Um, and I think it's really interesting just the, the reference you made there earlier on in relation to time commitments. I mean, the primary purpose... Okay, one of the key features, actually, of CP86 is about time commitments, actually, for, for, for the board, okay, and for directors, both NEDs and INEDs. Uh, and I think that's a critical piece. And particularly if you're on... I think the 20 number... Look, you know, it depends how busy those those uh, particular entities are. Uh, but I do think this, I think that uh, probably prior to, uh, pre-CP86 and pre the correspondence that came out back in 2015, you know, it just wasn't possible for a number of INEDs particularly to carry the burden of responsibility and to fulfill their obligations, not just to the funds or to the fund entities, but also to the regulators and really to themselves too, in relation to the amount of work and volume they had. Um, given the time uh, commitment restrictions that were then imposed post that. And 2,000 2000 hours is a very, very generous time allocation in a year. I mean, I just did the numbers there last night. I mean, that's you're almost working full-time without taking any holidays. So that, That's uh, how hard you guys work. <laughs> so are you into a 14 or 16-hour day, or are you into an average 88-hour day? And yeah. I actually think, you know, 2,000 hours and 20 directorships uh, you know, is the guidance, okay? And then, and then what happens then is if you're north of, of either, okay, then you're into a sort of a, a high category in relation to regulatory oversight. And then there's various things that the chair and others actually have to, to sign off on to say actually that you have yeah. the capacity um, to, to, to fulfill your obligations. Yeah, it's a tricky one to, to get that balance right because one directorship could be, 20 sub funds and a very active fund mm. and another directorship could be one sub fund that's a close in a property fund with very little activity. So, so if you look back then at the organisational effectiveness, I mean, and the role of that, I mean, there's a number of different ways that that role could be performed, actually, or the reason why that has particularly been called out. But I think that's probably one of them. I mean, one actually is is the board, the effectiveness of the board. So if you have an individual on the board who's maxed out on, on, on a load of other funds who are extremely busy for whatever reason, uh, uh, you know, they need to make sure that that director's responsibilities to the particular board or fund that they are on uh, with respect to that particular purpose actually is, is still a satisfactory or meets the, the, the needs of of that particular entity. And on the organisation effectiveness role, obviously the, the guidance on that is drafted very uh, in quite general terms and the obligation is to have somebody who is an independent director or chairperson to conduct this organisation effectiveness role. Are you seeing, a couple of weeks away, are you seeing uh, the field narrow in terms of how different uh, directors and, and management companies are approaching the organisation effectiveness uh, task or are you seeing it's very different approaches taken by different firms and you're sort of it'll be something that we'll see play out in time uh, that the, I think this I think uh, I think what would be helpful is guidance on this okay I think what you what what you sort of hear or see out in the market is everybody's trying to interpret actually exactly what that is it's not that difficult to interpret actually how you apply it 
is is a different thing, okay? And and that is something that, you know, people obviously want to, in my view, actually, and particularly the INEDs and, and the members of IFTA want to do the best they can, okay, in relation to corporate governance and responsibility and accountability. But they're a little unsure what's expected. So how will a regulator actually examine or expect or, or do its own sort of inspection, actually, of that particular role and the responsibilities of those particular individuals. I, yeah, I think that lack of guidance is is um, on purpose, effectively. I think the central bank wants to see how the industry almost, you know, produces its its own view or regulates its, its own view of, of the role. I mean, we, we took... We sort of took a decision internally that, look, we have certain views on how this role might play out. So we, we effectively built out a process and a procedure we shared with a number of independent directors that we work with. Um, we've built a template report that we think is, is, is helpful for those independent directors. It's obviously each of their own decision as to how they wish to, wish to approach the role. But, you know, my thoughts were, um, you know, this, this isn't a reinventing the wheel. There, there, this isn't, a, you know, an extra series of documents that need to be produced. So everything that is being produced, and as we know, board packs get bigger and bigger, provides the information for that independent director to put, to perform the role. So, you know, we wouldn't propose that there's, you know, much extra activity taking place. However, to, I mean, to the points made, this is very much a step back uh, position and and have that ability to have an overarching view of the structure in its entirety, the rest of the board. Um, and bearing in mind there are, you know, tools and mechanisms to do that already, be it the corporate governance code, um, you know, be it annual due diligences. So um, we certainly think that through the organizational effectiveness role, it's something of a prism for the directors or that director and the designated person to work together. So I think there needs to be very strong communication between the two. But, you know, I, I don't see this as something, you know, some people have mentioned this as a supervision of delegate type role. I don't think it's remotely that or an internal audit role. I don't think it's that either. Um, I think it is very much that step back overarching view. I do think, as I said earlier, that for the central bank, once they get a handle on, on how this role is being performed, they will see that organizational effectiveness director as their point person to the fund. So I do think those directors will be contacted almost initially along with the chair in, in series of inspections or uh, be it distressed situations. So I think it has a, 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 a quite a significant responsibility, but um, you know, I don't believe a, a huge amount of extra activity on top of what a director really should be doing anyway. Yeah. So proportionality, I mean, I think is important here. I mean, you know, you look at the PRISM rating actually and how regulated entities actually are scored from a risk perspective and from a regulatory risk perspective. I mean, that'll determine actually, you know, how detailed and how micro the organisational effect of this role needs to be uh, in relation to responsibility. So it'll be give it scale or give it volume or give it the size of the fund or various things like that. Uh, that's that, a right, is, that is definitely true. That, that, yeah. That's a right thing. I mean, yeah, of whereas if you're a medium-low or a low impact, but particularly a medium-low or even a medium, I mean, again, proportionality here. I mean, the regulator is not going to come in there and expect the same depth, okay, as they will for a high-impact type firm. That's just the way it works. But that works for all regulations. So I think, I think there's nothing hugely new here. I mean, if you look at the annual compliance statements that are signed off by board and by chairs, the statement of responsibilities as well, it's linking each one of these things to what does get signed off. And if I was a chair, and I've chaired audit committees, and I've chaired risk committees, and I've been on remuneration committees and everything else, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not in full-time, you want somebody to tell you or you need to be able to identify, you know, where the hotspots are, or you want to be informed on certain things, you will ask for certain things or certain information. But, you know, the organisational effect of the roles actually formalises that sort of process between the link between the board, 
a board member actually who then can go down into the in effect the executive management actually of the of the of the, the business or the entity or the fund itself whatever else and actually then check and validate so yeah. go back up the other way i mean each of those individuals then know that they have to there's a level of oversight specific to their particular role and function which which needs to be reported on by the chair or by the at the ined at least annually. And I actually think that's, there's no harm in that. And I think, uh, so, so looking forward then as to after 1st of July, what, what we might see, the Central Bank has already flagged a themed inspection around the organisation effectiveness role. So let's mm. guess that's the first thing mm. on the radar. And presumably, you know, it only comes into effect for everybody on the 1st of July. So it'll probably be end of this year into next year before that, that really uh, kicks in. And it could be that an output of that is something that gives this additional guidance to individuals doing the role and to fund management companies that sort of narrows the scope of of what's expected of them. And it might be something that says, well, here's some good practices we've seen. And so that just gives you a better, gives the individuals and the firms a better handle on what the industry standard is and what the expectations are. So it's it's going to evolve, I guess. Um, Anything else that you see coming down the tracks in terms of CB86, or, or where, where now with it? Is, yeah. it? is it put away into a box and forgotten about? or No, abs- absolutely not. Uh, and I, I would say that, you know, certainly the bank's expectation on uh, a cultural shift, let's say, since 2014, I, I think that has been achieved. I mean, I, I think there is an industry, um, you know, acknowledgement that it has raised the bar from a fund management company effectiveness perspective. Um, and we are sort of now in a, not so much a slightly new era, but we now have information on a page that we should be compliant with. And if we're not, we need to have a pretty good explanation as to why we're not. So, um, you know, I, I, what I would say is I, I still actually think um, there is a level of uh, uncertainty um, as to some of the practicalities, let's say from a reporting and operational perspective on an ongoing basis. I think everyone is going to be document ready um, and I think all the documents will look pretty and nice and in the way the central bank would like them to see. Um, I think there has actually been a lot of work done, certainly amongst our clients, on risk management and risk management framework and building that out um, from sort of beyond the RMP that was in place to, you know, a proper risk appetite, proper risk registers. Uh, but that has to have an organic live feel to it. Um, and there are challenges with that, particularly as it relates to portfolio information. So, you know, there are various, um, and again, I think this is potentially a horses for courses conversation and the bank does mention proportionality when it comes to, you know, portfolio risk. So if it's a daily fund, you, you need to have information that reflects that. Or if it's a private equity fund with one asset and one valuation, that obviously is different to, you know, a more liquid fund. But I think um, there are sort of many shapes and sizes as to how that, that particularly that portfolio risk role uh, is going to be performed and the information reporting that goes into that. So I still think, albeit I think we'll see a, a, a much more harmonised level of, of documentation post-July 1, I think um, there's still a body of work to be done on the actual practicalities of it on an ongoing basis. Um, so that'll be interesting to see how the central bank views that. Um, you know, obviously, as you said, they may come in on the organisational effectiveness role. When they do broaden out their inspections, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, you know, what standards they see out there, particularly on that practical, from that pr- practical perspective. Are you looking forward to it? <laughs> Okay, we're, we're only here to do a job. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Connor? Is there, is there? Yeah, I think, I think a few things. I think, um, 
I, I think <clears throat> what's interesting is how the central bank will handle the amount of data or information coming in. Um, you know, so the level of, I suppose, intensity in relation to reporting and various things like that, actually. Um, um, and it's interesting. So, like, it's very easy to sort of, well, sorry, it's not very easy to write regulation, but regulation takes time, okay, to, to want to draft, to consult, to go to market, and then to come back and get approved. And then actually the, um, the, the, um, transposition period then is usually quite lengthy, so it gives terms uh, firms actually quite a period of time actually to, to to be ready for it. But the information flow coming back in once this goes live, I mean, even how the regulators are going to actually manage their own activity in relation to the thematics. So normally, what happens is you know desktop, okay, so <clears throat> you know it's what they did there in the questionnaire there you know a little while back actually in relation to you're ready for it. <laughs> I mean the, the same thing in relation to MIFID too. So there's a program of work actually here and a framework that's there. I think this, I think it'll be, I, I do see this not just you know in, 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 in the funds area but regulators are now examining more okay so they have more data uh, and it'll be interesting to see actually the influx of of, of data reporting information, um, uh, how they will actually cope with that, okay? Not just CBI, but other regulars as well in relation to similar sort of needs or whatever. I think the, the other thing in relation to the designated persons and the categories, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting what they are. I mean, risk, 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 and then capital and financial management. And it's, 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 it's an unusual, I don't think it's wholly unusual. I just wonder, will with some of those, I know that, you know, some of those functions can be carried out by the same person. And I just wonder, will it sit at those six? Will they go out maybe two, maybe eight? Or will they, or will they just maybe amalgamate one or two of those rules maybe in time? I don't know, just a sense yeah. that I get in relation to, because some are very clearly distinctive and others then are quite blended in actually between, uh, between, uh, between each other. Yeah. Well, you said started out with did it six and it grew to nine and AIFMD was ten. fifteen and so yeah. you know I mean I I it's only I think it's only going to aggregate more so I think you know if you take the Lux model it's it's three conducting officers um, across sort of three functions so you know if it goes any way I think it'll it'll sort of streamline more and more um, and I agree there is still overlap from those those six functions and it does prompt the question I, I know we haven't a lot of time but you know is the bank's expectation that there are six individuals performing the six functions and um, I certainly hope not because that's not certainly my approach to it uh, I mean I think yes the, you, there needs to be a functional understanding and expertise uh, and technical experience uh, of an individual performing each of those functions but I don't think the you know the, the, the most effective organization has six designated persons sitting within it um, I think three frankly is 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 really as much as you would want and um, so I think it's the seniority of the role is the more important piece because much of this is a challenge of delegate it's not performing you know, a nav striking. It's not performing um, a risk calculation necessarily. It's being able to validate and verify and test those calculations or those operations. So, um, you know, it will be, they, they are very functional roles, um, but they do overlap. And I think, um, you know, having six people involved in that would be just, just a little over the top. Yeah. I think the rules are written to, that you lead at least two because yeah, the overlap. Certainly, what, you can't um, have, yeah, yeah, investment management and fund risk performed right. by the same person. Yeah, which is which is, I mean, and I've seen this where 
<laughs> even in, in, in big entities, big fund managers actually, where it's very blurred, okay, between the two. And then you have this issue around conflicts, okay, and, 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 and that. So this sort of does split those out. I mean, I, I go back to the very, I mean, simplicity is a great thing in relation to, you know, actually trying to manage the complexity, let's say, of a business. I mean, first line, second, third line, CP120, for example, which is out for consultation right now, is very clear in relation to first, second, and third line, and the role of the various committees and various things. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's probably three or four key functional roles, CEO, CFO, CRO, and maybe COO, okay? And then sitting within that somewhere actually is either compliance into the risk uh, and part of the same sort of, you know, unit or subunit. So it's a, it is interesting mm. why they've broken it out into even sub-functions within what would normally be a sort of a, 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 a PCF or a, yeah, a principal control function in other entities in different sectors, okay, of, of the industry. And they've broken this out into to, to six different designated roles, which yeah. is, is... Well, they didn't start from a blank page on that one, but um, we will see. So it will evolve. And as you said, that you know, governance is very much high on the agenda of a lot of regulators, our own and accountability. included. Accountability. This is driving accountability, primarily. So we are likely to see more, more in this space, yes. uh, albeit... It might not be called CB86. We might have finally <laughs> moved back and call it Fund Management Company Effectiveness. Let me wrap it up there. Uh, let me conclude by thanking, firstly, my two co-hosts. Uh, thank you very much for your time and for your insights. You. Uh, let me thank Gavin Timlin from Sound Create for recording and editing the podcast. And let me say goodbye, and we will catch you next time on the next episode of the Equest Podcast. You've been listening to the Aquas Podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.